Alright, are you guys ready to get in the Gospel of John this morning? It's been a month. We're going to pick up where we left off. We're going to be in chapter 2, right at the end of it, so you can go ahead and open to that portion of John's Gospel. Our text this morning is going to be chapter 2, verses 23 through 25. Just that. Just that small paragraph. And the reason for that is because this section, this paragraph, really is a a transition to the next section. If you look what follows, it's chapter 3, and it is... Jesus' interaction with a man named Nicodemus, and I wouldn't, didn't want to get into that and kind of break it up too much, so we'll get into that next time. But this really is a standalone transition. And just so we understand the context, we are going to review a little bit, just to bring us up to speed, what we covered last time, so that we can understand what's going on in this moment, in verses 23 through 25, we can understand it rightly. So, as I said last time, we had looked at verses 13 through 22, in which we read of Jesus' confrontation with the Jews inside the temple precinct in Jerusalem. He and his disciples had gone there to celebrate the Passover and to observe the seven-day feast of unleavened bread that immediately followed it. And it was during this occasion that Jesus manifested himself to Israel in an unforgettable way. The temple officials had for some time allowed animal merchants and money changers to set up shop inside the temple precinct in the court of the Gentiles, which was the outermost court surrounding the temple building and the furthest point Gentiles could go when they came to worship the God of Israel. The result of this arrangement was that when pilgrims walked through the entrances to the temple precinct, they stepped into a bustling marketplace. Jesus had obviously observed this scene numerous times before when he came up to Jerusalem for the annual feasts, as he would have as a faithful, obedient Jew under the law of Moses. And no doubt this scene disturbed him every time he saw it. But what was different about this occasion that we had covered last time was that Jesus' ministry as the Messiah of Israel had begun. And he intended to take decisive and authoritative action against this ungodly practice. The animal merchants and money changers had disrupted worship in the temple long enough. Jesus made a whip of cords and he disrupted them. He shut their business down and drove them all out of there. Now, the temple officials confronted Jesus about this action he had taken. He had acted on his own, outside of their authority. And without their permission, he shut down the business that was being conducted with their approval. And was a considerable profit to them. They asked what miraculous sign he would perform to demonstrate that he had greater authority than theirs. And thus, could act independently and clear out the temple court as he did? And he answered them with a challenge. He said to them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. 
Now, as John explains, Jesus was speaking about the temple of what? His body. Thus, he was referring to his own death and resurrection, which would indeed be, at the culmination of his ministry, the greatest sign of all. This sign would demonstrate beyond the shadow of a doubt that he is the Son of God who has life in himself and power and authority over all things, even over death itself. His authority infinitely surpassed that of the faithless and negligent temple officials. However, no one understood what he meant by his words at the time that he spoke them. The temple officials dismissed his statement as being absurd because they thought he was talking about the 46-year-old magnificently reconstructed temple building itself that was at the center of the precinct. That grand and glorious building. They thought he was talking about that. The thought of him building that from the ground up in just three days was ridiculous to them. And they were dismissive of his claim. However, they could not be dismissive of him. After all, he openly challenged their authority, shaking things up. They began to think of what to do with him because they saw him as trouble. They saw him as a threat to their own privileged position. He's shaken up the status quo. We like the status quo. We're going to keep our eye on him, figure out what to do with this man. Now, this was just the beginning of their opposition, though, and they did not have the will of the people on their side. In fact, it seems reasonable to assume that most of the people who were present in the temple precinct at the time were glad that Jesus took the action that he did. If they were of the same mindset as the temple authorities, well then, they themselves would most likely have taken action to stop Jesus from driving out the merchants and money changers. Also, the temple officials would not have been as cautious and would likely have attempted just to, attempted to arrest Jesus. But that was not the case. It seems that the people welcomed what Jesus did. At least, they weren't opposed to it. After all, they were well aware of the corrupt practices of the high priest's family and the temple officials. They were corrupt. And it wasn't a secret. The people could see that it was not right having the outer temple court turned into a marketplace. They knew that wasn't right. They could see that it was not right that pilgrims who had come to worship were being exploited by the merchants and money changers. In addition to that, they must have been excited to see that there was now a second prophet that had risen up in Israel. One had been preaching a baptism of repentance out in the countryside. And right here in the temple, in Jerusalem, was, one was starting to set things straight in the temple. Now the people, in general, weren't specifically mentioned in that passage in verses 13 to 22. The Jews John mentioned in that passage were most likely the temple authorities, just them, who were interacting with Jesus. However, 
In verses 23 to 25, our text for this morning, John does tell us how the people in general, at least many of them, responded to Jesus during his time in Jerusalem. What we're going to see in this passage is that while the people may not have been opposed to Jesus' righteous actions, and while they may even have approved of them, that did not necessarily mean that they were embracing him altogether. Approving of what Jesus does and being impressed with his abilities is not the same thing as placing your faith in him for who he truly is and following after him on his terms. Right? So approving of what he does, being impressed with his abilities, is not the same thing as placing your faith in him and following after him on his terms. Verse 23, we read, Now when he was in Jerusalem, at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs he was doing. Jesus and his disciples were in Jerusalem for over a week. The Passover holiday was immediately followed by the seven-day Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the whole occasion was referred to as the Passover feast or festival. And after Jesus cleared the temple, he and his disciples did not leave Jerusalem, but stayed there through the entire festival. So Jesus was totally fine with clearing the temple, and he had no problem sticking around after he did that. He's like, oh, got to go, cause some trouble. Back to Galilee. Oh, they're there for the whole week. And John tells us that during this time, throughout the festival, Jesus performed miraculous signs. Jesus did not perform a sign in the presence of the temple authorities who demanded one. However, he did perform signs in the presence of the rest of the people. But we're not told the details of those, just the fact that he did. Now, up until this point, there was only one sign that Jesus had done. And that was turning water into wine at the wedding feast in Cana. And that sign he did very discreetly in such a way that only his disciples perceived the miracle he had done. Or most likely, just them. Maybe his mother. But it was discreet. That sign was really for them to strengthen their faith before he took his ministry public. And he chose to take his ministry public in Jerusalem with his first public act in the temple itself. This was an initial fulfillment of what God had disclosed to the Israelites through the prophet Malachi nearly 500 years beforehand. Here's what God foretold through this prophet. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant 
that is the Lord whom you seek, this one who is the messenger of the covenant, in whom you delight, probably a little sarcasm there, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. It's coming to clean up. Jesus appeared in the temple, his father's house, and he took decisive, righteous action. After this, he performed signs in the presence of the people right there in Jerusalem. Thus, he manifested himself to Israel. The people's expectation for the coming of Christ was at an all-time high already. And here was Jesus, who had cleared the temple and was now performing miraculous signs in their presence in Jerusalem. Ding, 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 ding. What was their reaction? Well, John tells us that many, what? Believed in his name. Hallelujah. Many believed in his name when they saw the signs he was doing. Now, if, all that, if that was all that was said, then we might assume that there was some sort of revival in Jerusalem, that many of the Jews were saved through faith in Jesus, their Messiah. After all, it says they believed in his name, right? However, the very next verses indicate to us that not all is as it seems. We read in verses 24 and 25, but... Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Appearances can be deceiving. To us, that is. But never to the Lord. The reason why is because as the text says, he knows all people and he knows what's in us. He's not dependent upon what we say about ourselves, our profession, or what others might say on our behalf concerning our faith in him, our love for him, or our devotion to him. He doesn't need our testimony, us to bear witness about that. He sees beneath the surface. He sees behind what we project. He sees our real substance. That is, the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. Scripture says, for the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance. But the Lord looks on the heart. As a result of Jesus infallible perception of all men, John tells us that with regard to the many who believed in his name during his visit in Jerusalem, Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them. His assessment of their belief was that it was untrustworthy. It was a kind of belief, but not the kind that was indicative of salvation. It's helpful to compare John's usage of the phrase, 
believed in his name that is used here with his only other usage of this phrase in his gospel. The first time he used it was in his prologue. And he used it in reference to genuine saving belief. That's how he used it there. He wrote the following in, in John chapter 1. So the prologue is verses 1 through 18. And we've looked at this already. We're going back now. In verses 11 through 13, John wrote, He, that is Jesus, the life-giving word, the true light, the divine son, he came to his own, that is, his own things. What was his own? Israel. He came to Jerusalem. He came to the temple. He came to his people. All that was his. In fact, since through him all things were made, everything was his. He came to what was his own, and his own people, specifically the people of Israel, his own people did not receive him. Again, collectively. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. The difference between the saving belief in Jesus' name mentioned here and the superficial belief of the many in Jerusalem mentioned in chapter 2 is that saving belief is the fruit of being born of God. And it results in receiving Jesus as he truly is. That is, receiving him as the Christ, as the Son of God, who is the Savior of sinners and Lord of all. And receiving him as he truly is, has implications. That is, you trust in him alone for salvation and submit to him as Lord. Those are the terms. That's what it means to receive Jesus. It is only by God's gracious and supernatural work that any sinner comes to truly believe in Jesus' name in this way and therefore comes to receive him as he truly is. It's not the will of the flesh that does that. As those who are born of God, it is the supernatural work upon the one who is dead in their sins to give them Life, that they might respond favorably to Christ and receive him as he truly is. Consider Jesus' first disciples then. John, Andrew, Peter, Philip, and Nathaniel, we read of them. They believed that Jesus was indeed the Messiah based on the testimony of others. John and Andrew believed the testimony of John the Baptist. Peter and Philip believed the testimony of Andrew, and Nathaniel believed the testimony of Philip. Although Nathaniel had some doubt, because Philip said that uh, he was from Nazareth. But uh, that doubt immediately went away after Jesus spoke to him. After this, they went with him to the wedding in Cana. And during the feast, they, what? they, they witnessed his first miraculous sign, turning water into wine. That account of his 
this uh, first miraculous sign concludes by saying that Jesus thus manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Now they, they had already believed the testimony concerning him that he was the Messiah, the one of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote. And he had welcomed them to come and see where he was staying and to spend time with him and to follow him. Hearing him speak confirmed their belief that he was the Messiah. And then witnessing his miraculous sign at the wedding feast further confirmed their belief in him. They were already believing. And the more time they spend with Jesus, that belief, that faith is confirmed. He truly is the Messiah. Now, what does our text say concerning the many in Jerusalem who believed in Jesus? Many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. If one witnessed the miraculous signs of Jesus, then believing in his name would be not just an appropriate response, but the only right response. However, the question that must be asked is, what was the nature of that belief? What was the nature of that belief? Was it the fruit of being born of God? If so, then it would result in them receiving Christ as he truly is. After all, the signs were not intended to be an end in themselves. They were given to point the people to Jesus and to the word that he spoke. Jesus explained later in this gospel, the works that I do in my father's name bear witness about me. He said, if I am not doing the works of my father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the father is in me and I am in the father. Hence, these miracles are called signs. They point you to Jesus, not just to what he's capable of in the sign itself, but point you to him that you might listen to him, hear what he is saying, what he is teaching authoritatively, and embrace that by faith. Submit to it. Believe him, who he truly is, what he says of himself. One commentator says this regarding the issue of the signs Faith may well begin by first trusting in the signs. Again, we can't think, hey, they believed when they saw the signs. I oh, shouldn't have done that. You should have just believed the testimony. Well, sometimes you see the sign first. Nothing wrong with responding in belief when you see the sign. And that's the first thing, interaction, right? So he says, faith may well begin by first trusting in the signs. But the signs and the word belong together like a document and the seals attached to it. The seals alone eventually amount to nothing. Some advanced from the signs to the word, and thus, believing both, attained abiding faith. Others saw the signs just as clearly, but refused the word and remained in unbelief. 
The works of Christ are intended to point you to the person of Christ so that you might believe the word of Christ and receive him as he truly is. We'll see later in John's gospel that many of the Jews who believed in Jesus as a result of seeing his miraculous signs followed him, but then later abandoned him because they refused to believe his word. Particularly, his testimony concerning himself. This is clearly seen in chapter 6 of John's Gospel, in which we have the account of Jesus miraculously feeding a crowd of about 5,000 men, which if women and children are there, it might have been closer to 20,000. But thousands of people fed with five barley loaves and two fish. John tells us, that when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. There's some belief there. However, when Jesus later told this crowd that he is the bread of life and that he had come down from heaven, they grumbled about him. When he pressed this teaching further and said, Whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. Uh, They couldn't bear it. It was too much for them. Why don't you turn over to chapter 6. We'll read just this portion, verses 60, 60 through 66. We're catching like the tail end of this account. So the sign's been done. People are like, oh. And, and, you know, they followed after him. But then he starts, you know, talking about himself, teaching. And the more he's teaching, the more they're not really liking what he's saying. What do we read? And starting in verse 60. When many of his disciples heard it. You know, this testimony about himself being the bread that has come down from heaven, the one who feeds on him will have life, who will live because of him. Verse 60, when many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, now again, disciples is just used in general. These are people following him. Not exclusively the 12 he's talking about here, just the crowd. So he, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. In that passage, we saw that superficial 
believers. They're believing, but it's not a belief that's born of God, generated by God. They're superficial believers. Superficial believers will take offense at Christ's teaching. Profess faith in Christ all you want. Claim to be a Christian all you want. You read the scriptures. You take offense at any of it. You don't belong to him. Or at best, at best, you've got a lot of learning to do and maturing to do and and learning to come under the word of God. Superficial believers will take offense at Christ's teaching. Superficial belief, we also see, is generated by the flesh and The flesh is no help at all when it comes to pleasing God. Remember, Jesus said he's he's speaking words that are spirit and life. And we also saw that Jesus, what? He knows from the beginning those who are not true believers. That whole time, from day one, he knew who did not truly believe, as in savingly believe. Now, let's go a little further. John chapter 8. One more example, because I, want I wanted us to camp out on this passage, 23 to 25 of chapter 2, because it, it tells us something important that we're going to keep seeing in John's gospel. And we have to understand it rightly. Just because it says people believed, or they believed in Jesus, they believed in his name, doesn't mean that they were truly born of God, and therefore their belief was still a damning belief. They were still in their sins. They were not saved. And that belief, it comes out later, the substance of that belief, or I should say the lack of substance of that belief. In chapter 8, uh, verses 25, start, start in verse 25. I'll read a little faster because I want you to just to see the flow here. What, what we're going to see is that superficial belief is once again exposed by the word of Christ. He's going to expose it. We see the people's true and underlying hostility towards Christ well up to the surface. I mean, it was well hidden, but again, by his word, it gets exposed and it starts coming out. Even to the point of wanting to kill him. Ready? I'm going to read, I'm going to read relatively quick, starting in verse 25 through 59. Don't worry about it. We're going to read the whole thing. So they said to him, Who are you? Jesus said to them, Just what I have been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I have heard from him. They did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. See that? So Jesus, listen, so Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. They answered him, we are offspring of Abraham, have never been enslaved to anyone. Not true. Egypt. (laughs) Rome. 
But there's their response. We're offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father and you do what you have heard from your father. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, If you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works of your father. You are you're doing the works your father did. They said to him, We were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. You see the hostility. See what they're saying about him? Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. The Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Wrong, wrong. Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, Now we know you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died? And the prophets died. Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet fifty years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Do you see that? Oh, but this was the crowd that believed. And again, they 
were believing what he was saying initially. But he kept teaching them the truth. And they couldn't bear to hear it. So what we've seen in both of these accounts, that we'll get to eventually and look in greater detail, but what we've seen in these accounts is that by refusing to believe the word of Christ, the Jews had refused to receive him as he truly is. And thus they revealed that their belief in him was not of God, but was a response generated by their own sinful flesh. It was a belief that was driven by deceitful desires and self-serving motives. How many people embrace Christ because of what he can do for them, but they're not willing to truly follow after him and submit their lives to him? Jesus was not surprised, though, by these disciples' eventual rejection of him. As John says in our text, he knew all people. And he knew what was in man. He saw the heart. He could see the true nature of a man. So that in the face of any man's belief in him, he knew whether that belief was the fruit of being born of God or just a facade. He discerned that the belief of the many who believed in his name during his time in Jerusalem was only skin deep. Therefore, he was not entrusting himself to them. There are different ways superficial and thus untrustworthy belief plays out. Sometimes it is easy for true Christians to identify. And other times, perhaps most of the time, it is hard to identify, and we are taken by surprise when a professing believer turns away from Christ. Also, superficial belief sometimes results in, in people at some point overtly denying Christ and renouncing the faith they once professed, but other times, superficial believers will profess faith in Christ their whole lives, either to keep up appearances or because they are self-deceived. And finally, superficial believers may appear to follow Christ only for a short time, maybe a week, maybe a month, a year, maybe a couple years, a few years. Whereas others may do so for a long time, several years, decades. While we may be fooled, the Lord never is. He knows those who are truly his. We cannot see the heart. We can only judge based on, on evidence. And sometimes it's questionable. And sometimes we can't. it looks like good evidence. But the Lord knows. One very common example of untrustworthy belief is with children who are raised in Christian homes. Many of them embrace the faith of their parents and profess to love Jesus and even show some form of devotion to him. However, this is often merely because they are conforming to the beliefs of their parents and to the culture of the church they attend, not because they have been transformed by the Spirit of God. Once they grow up and leave home and are no longer under the authority and restraint of their parents, and they are in many ways free to do as they please, that is when the true nature of their belief is often exposed. They may not renounce the faith outright, 
They may just disassociate from the church, maybe attend on occasion, but never join themselves as members to a local church fellowship. They may just live a double life, professing the love and devotion to Christ while living an ungodly and self-centered life. Or perhaps none of this happens. Just last week, there was news of a prominent evangelical pastor who said he was done with Christianity. This man was raised in a Christian home and homeschooled by his parents. He was homeschooled. And by the way, his parents happened to be pioneers in the Christian homeschooling movement. At the age of 22, he published a best-selling Christian book about the importance of sexual purity to honor the Lord. That same year, he began an internship at an evangelical megachurch and was mentored by the senior pastor there. And seven years later, when he was about 30 years old, he stepped into the role of senior pastor at that church. Ten years later, at the age of 40, he stepped down from his senior pastor role with his church's blessing so that he could get a college degree. He never had formal education. He wanted to pursue that. He wanted to get a college degree and then go to seminary. Four years after that, which brings us to the present, he announced that he has renounced the faith and no longer identifies himself as a Christian. While the news of this sudden, drastic, seemingly sudden and drastic turn of events was, has certainly, certainly taken many by surprise, the Lord himself has always known. He has known this man's heart, and he has discerned that this man's belief has always been superficial. Three to four decades of professing faith in Christ and being aligned with rooted in pretty sound theology. It's not that he was a part of some false gospel preaching church or something like that. I mean, it seemed pretty faithful. Three to four decades of that. And yet Christ was never entrusting himself to this man. While a lot of Christians were assuming he was a godly man, devoted to Christ and shepherding them. He did not believe, Christ did not believe in this man's belief. Because as sincere as it might have been, it was not the fruit of being born of God. So what is the nature of your belief in Jesus? What is the nature of your belief? What is it? Every one of you, I'm talking to every one of you. Has it resulted in you receiving Jesus as he truly is? As the Jesus of Scripture, who is Lord of all and who places demands upon your life? Or have you received a Jesus of your own making? One who has been pieced together by the portions of Scripture that you feel comfortable with? Have you received a Jesus who offers you the benefits of forgiveness and eternal life, but who does not demand or expect that you accept all of Scripture as authoritative truth? That you love His church, that you pursue personal holiness, obey His commandments, and bring your life into conformity to His will? Those are all optional. 
Is that your Jesus? That's a false Jesus. I want you to linger on that question because we might be good at deceiving others, but the Lord is never deceived. And sometimes we can even deceive ourselves. But what does scripture say we ought to do? Well, no, 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 no. You, you prayed a prayer. You walked down an aisle. You signed a decision card. You went to a rally and, and, and embraced Christ. You, you, you did. But what does scripture say? Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Make every effort to be sure of your calling and election. Let's pray.